0: We're talking about stories that change the world. You know, when Jesus was here for only three years, but in those three years, He revealed to us the secrets of the Kingdom of Heaven. And He many times taught those to us through the use of parables, knowing that these ideas, these these secrets, these mysteries of the Kingdom of Heaven were so far beyond us that He had to kind of break them down into stories that we could understand. And these stories are marvelous. So far we've talked about the parable of generosity, the workers going into the vineyard. And it's a story that changed the world because Jesus declared to us who God really is, and God is a generous God. Every man-made religion known in the history of man has taught the exact opposite, that God had to be appeased, that he was a mean-spirited creature, or there were many gods that had to be appeased. But Jesus said, no, that's not what God's like. God is generous. He does not treat us as our sins deserve. But he gives us so much more than we deserve. Then last week we talked about the parable of the sower. And again, we discovered that it's not that God is hiding who he is or hiding his plan for man or hiding his plan for eternity. It's there. The problem is we're not listening. We're not hearing. And so the parable of the, of the sower Really, we could call the parable of the hearer taught us that if we'll open our hearts and not clutter our lives up so much that we crowd God out and not become discouraged when trials come and think that God has forsaken us. But if we're fertile soil, then God is going to unveil to us and open to us through the presence of the Holy Spirit and through his word, the literal secrets of the kingdom of God. Today. We're going to look at the parable of the ten virgins. If you have your Bible, I invite you to open it to the first gospel in the New Testament, the gospel of Matthew chapter 25. Now, you're probably picking up on a trend as we talk about and learn about these parables. That Jesus isn't just picking this stuff up out of the sky and all of a sudden sharing a story. There's a reason why he shares the story. And in every parable so far, we've had to back up to find out what motivated, what prompted Jesus to share the parable. And today is, is, is no exception to that. To really understand the parable of the ten virgins, we've got to back up into chapter 24 for just a moment. Jesus is leaving the temple in Jerusalem for the last time. He, he, it's at the end of his ministry now. And it will be soon that his life is taken. He'll be crucified. And so for the last time, he and his disciples are leaving the temple area. And as they're leaving, the, the, the disciples, kind of like, like it's the first time they ever saw it, they're, they're just saying, Jesus, look at these buildings. Look at how magnificent, majestic these buildings are. And they're just kind of going on and on and on about the beauty of the temple. And it was amazingly beautiful. But then Jesus rattles their cage. And in Matthew chapter 24, verse 2, he says, do you see all these things? I tell you the truth, not one stone here will be left on another. Everyone will be thrown down. Jesus just rattles their cage. You, say, you think this is something? It is. It's pretty magnificent, isn't it? But understand this. Not one stone is going to be left on another. This is temporary, what you see. It's not eternal. And Jesus was prophesying about what would happen in the year 70 A.D., In 70 A.D., the Roman general Titus came in with the Roman legions and they laid siege to Jerusalem. And after starving the people out, they took the city, they slaughtered thousands and thousands of people, and they burned the city down to the ground. Now, when they burned the city down, they burned the temple down. And when they burned the temple down, much of the gold that was embedded in the temple walls melted into all the, uh, the crevices of the rocks. And so the Romans literally, rock by rock, disassembled the temple to get to the gold that had melted, just as Jesus said. Then Jesus goes on to answer a question that his disciples ask immediately. In verse 3 they ask, when will this happen and what will be the sign of your coming and the end of the age? They say, okay, when's all this going to happen? And, and when are you finally going to take your rightful place as the king of Israel? See, they're still thinking that he's there to establish his earthly kingdom. And so Jesus begins to reveal in Matthew chapter 24, one of the great eschatological chapters in the New Testament. Eschatological meaning just talking about the end times. And he reveals a lot, and we don't have time to really get into all that today. But he's talking about what the signs will be That will mark his second coming. They don't understand it's his second coming he's talking about, but that's what he's talking about. The second coming of the Savior. After sharing many things with them, Jesus says in Matthew 24, verses 36-39, through No one knows about that day or hour, not even the angels in heaven, not the Son, but only the Father. Jesus says, no one knows. You know, every time we hear as a church these different dates that are set, know that it's not going to be that date. It could be any other date, but it won't be that date. Because God said it won't be. Jesus said it won't be. He said, the angels don't know the date. He said, I don't even know the date. Only God the Father knows the date. So when we get all these, uh, these wise, you know, scholars and working all these formulas, don't put any stock into it. Don't worry about it. Don't sell your possessions. It's not going to happen. But Jesus says this. He says, but it's going to be like the day of Noah. It's going to be kind of like that time when the coming happens. And what he's saying is that just like in the day of Noah, before the great flood came and and destroyed all of life on planet Earth except for Noah and his family and, and the animals that were in the ark, He said, just be like that day. That was a day that to everyone else was just another day. Got up, ate breakfast. Many went to work. They were giving in marriage. They were having celebrations. It was like nothing was going to happen that day. And yet that day literally brought the end of the world as those people knew it. So that's how it's going to be. People are just going to be going about their normal daily activities, not understanding the dramatic event that's about to happen. Jesus said in Matthew 24:39, "That is how it will be at the coming of the Son of Man." And so therefore he says in Matthew 24:42, "Therefore keep watch because you do not know on what day your Lord will come." So the whole focus of chapter 24 is the second coming of Christ. Now the question that remains, is just what does being ready look like. Jesus said, watch, be ready, because you don't know the day, you don't know the hour. So you just be ready all the time. But what does that look like? Jesus, how can we be ready for that day, for that hour? Well, Jesus then goes on in chapter 25 to share a couple parables that illustrate to us What it is to be ready for the second coming of Christ. We begin with the first one today. Matthew 25, beginning in verse 1. Jesus says, At that time the kingdom of heaven will be like ten virgins who took their lamps and went out to meet the bridegroom. Five of them were foolish and five were wise. The foolish ones took their lamps but did not take any oil with them. The wise, however, took oil in jars along with their lamps. The bridegroom was a long time in coming, and they all became drowsy and fell asleep. At midnight, the cry rang out, Here's the bridegroom! Come out to meet him! Then all the virgins woke and trimmed their lamps. The foolish ones said to the wise, Give us some of your oil, our lamps are going out. No, they replied, there may not be enough for both us and you. Instead, go to those who sell oil and buy some for yourself. But while they were on their way to buy the oil, the bridegroom arrived. The virgins who were ready went in with him to the wedding banquet, and the door was shut. Later, the others came also. Sir, sir, they said, open the door for us. But he replied, I tell you the truth, I don't know you. Therefore keep watch, because you do not know the day or the hour there's that phrase again that book ends it therefore keep watch because you don't know the day nor the hour now once again jesus uses a very familiar everyday event in the life of the people of his time to illustrate an eternally important truth See. This whole parable kind of shoots over the heads of of us 2,000 years later who are are used to a whole different kind of wedding experience than they were in Palestine and and in many places today. In a Jewish wedding, there was actually three parts. The first part was the engagement of the bride and groom, and that was all prearranged. The parents of the bride, the parents of the groom, they prearranged who they were going to marry. They didn't go out dating and fall in love and go to the movies and all that. No. The, the parents just said, okay, here's the deal. I'm, you know, we're going to strike a deal. Maybe it was a merger between families. Maybe it was was a merger between businesses. Or maybe it was just they they picked someone they thought would fit their family values the best. But they would arrange the marriage. There was a, a mediator who would come and talk to both family. A deal would be sealed. And they would go forward with the marriage preparations. Then there was a betrothal period. The betrothal period was marked by an actual wedding ceremony, very small, between the bride, the groom, and the families and very close friends. Now, at the conclusion of that ceremony, the couple were legally married. In fact, if the husband died, the the bride was considered a widow. However, they did not yet come together and consummate the marriage, nor did they begin to live together. After the betrothal period, what would happen is the groom would go back with his family and his family would help him to secure a house, make sure he had a job, and make sure he had everything he needed to support that bride. Boy, we could learn from that, couldn't we? And then, after all these preparations were made, then the bridegroom would come to the bride's house and there would be... The reception, the wedding reception. But it was a wedding reception like we can't even believe. It didn't last an evening, it lasted an entire week. And the wedding reception was commenced by a parade through the village. And everybody would join the parade. And the parade was led by bridesmaids who carried these torches. And these torches symbolized that they were part of the wedding party. And very often, this parade would commence after dark, after dusk, to draw extra attention. The rabbis said even the rabbis would leave the study of the law, not the legal law, but the, but the, the spiritual law of Moses, to join the parade. Everybody joined the parade. And it was the most exciting time in the couple's life. Once the, the week-long festivities were done, Then they would consummate the marriage, and they would begin their life together as husband and wife. This is the scene that Jesus is talking about. This is what the people, the disciples, would have immediately picked up on. They would have understood what he's talking about. But in this particular occasion, five of the bridesmaids were ready, and five weren't. Five were wise, he said. Five were foolish. The groom came at midnight. Well, we know at midnight it's going to be dark. So you're going to need the torches, and when it comes, the cry goes out, but only five of them are ready to go. The other ones try to borrow oil from the ones who have oil, but they can't share it. Now, this parable highlights one aspect of what it means to be ready for the second coming of Jesus Christ, and the, this aspect, this truth, this lesson that Jesus teaches in this parable is just as critical for you and me in the year 2011 as it was for the disciples who first heard it. And every other generation of believer, And every other generation of Bible reader. In a parable, everything represents something. We've already crossed that, that bridge. In this particular one, the bridegroom is Christ. And we know this is all about the second coming. The bride's maid are representative of mankind. Now, some would even say that it's representative of the church, and a strong argument could be made that it is. However, in my mind, Jesus didn't, wasn't overtly saying that, and so I'm not going to go there. But it certainly could be talking about the church, because he said, at such time, the kingdom of heaven will be like that. And you could say, the church will be in this kind of condition. But the wedding festivities, of course, is heaven. It's eternal life. Now, did you note the similarities among the bridesmaids in the story? They all looked alike. It didn't say, well, some were rich and some were poor, or some were pretty and some were ugly, or some were thin or some were fat. You know, It, it didn't say anything like that. They all looked the same. They were all ready. They all had the same wedding garments on. They all had a lamp. They were all looking for the same bridegroom. This wasn't some kind of a wedding pool where people just hung out and and some bridegroom would come into town and say, okay, you, 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 you you take this wedding, you guys, you're going to take the next one. They were waiting for the same bridegroom. They were all waiting with eager anticipation. They were excited about being part of the wedding party. The only difference in the parable between the bridesmaid is the oil. The wise ones had extra oil in a jar. The foolish ones did not. The foolish ones took their lamps, but they didn't take oil with them. The wise, Jesus said, however, took in jars along with them. They had plenty of oil. So what is this distinguishing characteristic in this parable? It's really important, because as we see the end of the parable, those who have it get into the wedding festivals. Those who don't do not get in. So what's Jesus saying? What does every man, what does every woman need to be ready for the second coming of Jesus Christ? Well, I, I could play with you for a while. We could make this exciting, but I want to give it to you, okay? Okay. The oil is saving faith. Saving faith. That's what it represents. And what is saving faith? Well, Jesus himself told us what it is. In John 14, 6, Jesus answered a question by saying this, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. The early church, from its very origin, Preached that same message in Acts 4.12. It says salvation is found in no one else. No one else speaking about the Christ, speaking about Jesus. Salvation is found in no one else for there is no other name under heaven given the men by which we must be saved. What is saving faith? Saving faith is believing in the sacrificial work of Jesus Christ on the cross. That Jesus is the Son of God that he died on the cross for the sins of man, and that he is the only way back to God. He is the only door that leads to eternal life. He is the only source of truth. He's the only way, and there's none other. Now, in this parable, Jesus declares the finality of his return as it relates to Jesus and saving faith. Later, after trying to go buy some oil, these five foolish bridesmaids come back, and they're pounding on the door, and they're saying, Sir, sir, we got the oil. Let us in. Let us in. Let us in. But notice what the bridegroom says. He doesn't say, Oh, really? Well, you guys should have had it before, and so you can just cool your jets out there for a while. Or, Yeah, yeah, I know, but you know, that part of the thing's over. We don't need you anymore. Thank you for your service. But what does he say? Is I don't know you. I don't know you. Who are you? See, those without saving faith at the return of Jesus Christ are shut out forever. At that time, Jesus says, the kingdom of heaven will be like this parable. In other words, when Christ comes back, this world is going to be filled with a whole lot of people who don't get it. In this parable, half of the people didn't get it. And half of the people would go out into a Christless eternity. See, so many people today believe this kind of image of Jesus, this caricature. Jesus is winking, he's got a big heart. He's pointing at people, thumbs up, saying, oh, you, you little rascal, you. It's okay, it's all right, I love you, man, it's all right, don't worry about it. Oh, yeah, uh, you're over here, I know what you've been up to, (laughs) you little devil, you. It's okay, it's all right, I love you anyhow. See, because God is so generous, and because God has made salvation free to us, great expense to him, because He doesn't treat us as our sins deserve, Psalm 103, we forget that God has a righteous character. We forget that God is holy. We forget that God has given mankind the only way back to Him. And when Jesus comes, That's it. Jesus declares the finality of his return. In doing so, Jesus slams the door on some of the religious thought and philosophies that man is holding on to for a hope that there's a chance other than what Jesus said about himself. It slams the door on work salvation. Work salvation, say, what's that? That's believing that somehow we can live a good enough life to merit heaven To merit eternal life. Did you notice there was another similarity among the bridesmaids in the parable? And that is that they all fell asleep. They all got drowsy. The bridegroom delayed his coming. It was a long time. And in that day, it could be three months, it could be five months, it could be six months, it could be a year before the bridegroom came. They had to be ready all the time. And Jesus knows that these disciples think all this is going to happen right now. And he knows it's going to be a long time. It's been 2,000 years. He hasn't come yet. And all of the bridesmaids waiting for him all became drowsy and all went to sleep. See, it's not that the wise bridesmaids were up all the time and they were active and they were waiting. They were, they were all vigilant. And, and the foolish ones, they were just sleeping and they were lazy and they weren't doing anything. No. Jesus clearly points out that it's not by works. It's not by effort. That wasn't the distinguishing characteristic. It wasn't that some slept and some didn't sleep that kept some out of the wedding banquet. Because they were all drowsy. And aren't you glad that it doesn't depend on our pure diligence because all of us get drowsy waiting for Christ, don't we? Ephesians 2, 8 and 9, a verse we use a lot here at Florida Bible. And a verse that we use so much that I hope you can, you can quote it to anybody. Because it's exactly what Jesus is teaching in this parable. For it is by grace you have been saved. Or you could say it is by God's generosity that you've been saved. Through faith. And this is not from yourselves. It's the gift of God. Not by works so that no one can boast. The finality. He says, I tell you the truth. I don't know you. Who are you? Why are you knocking on my door? Why are you trying to crash my party? Who are you? These words resonates strongly with words that Jesus had spoken earlier in His ministry. In the book of Matthew, chapter 7, verse 21 through 23, Jesus had already said this, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but only he who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. He says, Many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name, and in your name drive out demons and perform many miracles? Then I will tell them plainly, I never knew you. Away from me, you evildoers. "Everyone says, Lord, Lord, is going to be welcomed into the party. Now, what do you notice about these comments? Did we not prophesy in your name? And in your name, drive out demons? And in your name, perform miracles? Number one, you think you're talking about a bunch of preachers. But what's the joining characteristic of all three of those statements? Works. Didn't we prophesy? Didn't we work? Didn't we drive out demons? Work? Didn't we perform many miracles? Work? But salvation is not by works. And they didn't have the essential element, which is saving grace. Jesus slams the door on works salvation. You know, I got to tell you, I've struggled with that passage and this parable a lot in my ministry, a lot in my life, even before I entered the ministry. As you know, I was saved when I was nine years old. I grew up in a Christian home. and When I would read that Matthew passage, reading through the book of Matthew, it would scare me to death. Who are these people? Well, let me illustrate a couple true-life situations. This past week... Stella and I tried to get away for a couple of days to celebrate our anniversary. And I was reading a book. And I came across a couple examples that I think just point this out so clearly. One involves a guy named Richmond. And Richmond is a self professed Christian, he's a Christ follower from his perspective. But Richard lives in San Francisco, and he's a very ardent supporter of gay rights. An ardent supporter of their Proposition S, which was to make marriages between same-sex people. Now, the book says this. It's, It's a book called Culture Wars. It's not a religious book. It says, one sees a certain symmetry between Richmond's religious faith and his political ideals. Central to his religious faith is the belief that Jesus came to offer liberation for anyone who would listen. Good so far, right? That's exactly why Jesus came. But, it goes on. But in his view, the liberation Jesus brings is not a personal liberation from the sin of homosexuality, but rather the liberation of individuals to live according to the dictates of their personal conscience and style and the liberation of society as a whole from the prejudices and intolerances that keep us from being genuinely free, says Richmond. I see Jesus recognizing everyone's radical equality. See, here is obviously a person who knows who Jesus is, a person who regularly celebrates Jesus, but a person who doesn't get it. A person who is wanting to use Jesus to justify his own life preferences and his own views rather than embracing what Scripture says. Another example is one that centers around the abortion issue. And the book talks about a pro-life event where some folks gathered in front of an abortion clinic and, and, and they were trying to persuade people who were going in to to, to rethink it and to get some counseling, and and they were trying to support the value of human life. And it talks about another person, says, For B, the event that took place on that morning in May, and others like it were actions she has come to expect. For her, the so-called rescue was not about saving babies, but as she put it, denying women the right to health care. Though echoed by many others, B's opinions on the abortion issue carry a particular authority, for she is an adorned, ordained Episcopal priest. As president of a New York chapter of the Religious Coalition for Abortion Rights, she leads a group of religious leaders and laities from, laity from a wide array of denominations, Protestant, Catholic, Jewish, and humanists, who believe that there is a religious pro-choice position. As an Episcopalian, B does not believe that abortion is murder, because she did not believe that the fetus becomes a person until it is born. The fetus is life, she explains, and it is human, but it is not a person, just as an acorn is not an oak tree. She comes to this view in part because unlike Yuhita Levin and and Chuck and a couple other people the book had mentioned who were uh, evangelical Christians, she is not a scriptural literalist. Scripture, she contends, is not a document frozen in time. The Bible is a history of our growing understanding of God's needs to be read, listened to, and studied in its context. So too, in the context of modern society, she says, people have to interpret the Scripture or the traditions for themselves. See, there's a whole lot of people believe they have allegiance to Jesus Christ. Who regularly do exactly what we're doing today. But who do not truly embrace the message of Jesus. Who do not truly conform to God's word. Now, I I don't know whether either one of those will be in heaven or not from those statements, I would have to conclude that they do not have saving faith. But Jesus' point is this. There's a whole lot of people who aren't going to be ready for the second coming. Jesus also slams the door on substitutionary salvation. Did you note that when the bridegroom finally came, Some of the bridesmaids got up and they said, Give us some of your oil. Our lamps are going to go out. They knew they were in trouble. They had procrastinated. They had delayed. They didn't have the one ingredient that was necessary to be part of the wedding party. They didn't have the oil. Now, we might think that the other ones are being selfish when they say no, because there may not be enough for both of us. But in the parable... And what they would have understood was it was the simple fact that if they were to split the oil among ten, then they might not be able to fulfill their mission. And their mission was to light this parade, this festivity for the bridegroom and the bride. And if they failed to do that, they were going to bring humongous public humiliation on the families. So they said, no, we can't do that because if we share, then all the lamps might go out. Better to have five working lamps than none ideas idea is that there's certain things you just can't borrow when the bridegroom comes. And you certainly cannot borrow salvation. It doesn't matter how spiritual your mom and dad are. It doesn't matter how godly your grandparents are. It doesn't matter how ardent the faith of your friends are. You can't borrow the oil. You have to possess the oil yourself. And the oil is saving faith in Jesus Christ. It slams the door on things like the sale of indulgences. So it was the sale of indulgences that led to the Protestant Reformation. Martin Luther, who was a Catholic priest, was upset with the Catholic Church's practices at that time of selling people indulgences. And indulgence was a get-out-of-jail pass. Basically, it was that they could come to the church, pay the church, church, uh, the priest would pray a prayer and, and get someone's loved one out of purgatory into heaven, or even maybe out of hell into heaven if they had enough money. Substitutionary salvation. Jesus slammed the door on it. Some of that still goes on today in some quarters, but another one is baptism for the dead. There are denominations who claim to be Christian denominations, who regularly... Practice baptism for the dead. One is the, the, the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter day Saints. Do you know that they have the largest genealogy record system in the world? And the reason that they spend so much effort researching family trees is because part of their doctrine is that you can be baptized for one of your ancestors who have already died. And you can, through your faith and through your act of baptism, you can gain them entrance into the kingdom of God. Jesus slams the door on it. He says, no, you can't. Slams the door on things like purgatory. This belief that there's a, there's a place that you can go to, you didn't quite live a good enough life to get into heaven, so there's a place you can go to and, and spend some penance time, and after you spend enough time there, you can get out for good behavior and then go on into heaven. Or reincarnation, which is the same idea. You didn't live this life good enough to appease God or the gods. And therefore, you're going to have to live another life. And then you're going to have to live another one. And you're going to have to keep repeating the life cycle until you finally get it. See, later, others came, the parable says. Who had gone out and tried to do what they had, were supposed to do in the beginning try to make up for what they hadn't accomplished at the right time. And again, the response of the bridegroom, who is Christ, wasn't, okay, well, you made a good effort. Okay, okay, I'll give you another chance. He said, I never knew you. Parable highlights one aspect. Those without saving faith will be shut out of the kingdom of God forever. There's no plan B. There's no plan C. That's the way it is, and that's what Jesus was saying. And Jesus says, at the time of my return, the great tragedy is that there are going to be millions who aren't ready there will be millions who think they're ready who aren't ready. Why? Because they lack the one essential ingredient for eternal life, and that is faith in Jesus Christ. If you're here today, and you're without saving faith, you've never trusted Jesus Christ as your Savior. You might be a great person You might be an exemplary citizen. You might be benevolent and generous, and you might be caring, and you might be just somebody we should all seek to emulate in your values and in your integrity. But if you're without saving faith in Jesus Christ, Jesus says you're lost. You're not going to get in. He doesn't know you. But here's the good news. Romans 10 verses 8 and 9 says, The word is near you. It's in your mouth. It's in your heart. That is the word of faith that we're proclaiming. What we've been talking about this morning. Listen, it's as close as your mouth. It's already in your heart. Even right now. The Holy Spirit of God is dealing with your conscience saying, this is what I brought you here for. This is what you need. It goes on to say it's as simple as if you'll confess with your mouth, Jesus is Lord. What does that mean? If you'll confess with your mouth that there is no other way, that Jesus is the only way, that He is exactly who and what He said He was, the way, the truth, and the life, and no one comes to the Father except through Him, If you'll confess that He is Lord and believe that God has raised Him from the dead, believe that He was the only sacrifice that God recognizes for the forgiveness of sin. If you'll do that, the Bible says you're saved. John 1.12 says, Yet to all who received Him, to those who believed in His name, He gave the right to become children of God. My friend, if you're here today and you've never trusted Jesus Christ, this is the day. This is the time. Don't wait another moment. Most of us, I hope, have oil in our jar. We've trusted Jesus Christ. So for those of us with saving faith, here's our challenge. John 4.35, Jesus said, Do not say, four more months and then the harvest. He says, I tell you, open your eyes and look at the fields. They are ripe unto harvest. We're in the 930 Reflect service, our traditional service. Let me ask you, whose service is this? Maybe it's my service, because... I lead the worship and, and I preach. Maybe it's the church staff service because we organize it. We host it every week. Whose service is this? Let me answer the question. It's your service. Whose church is this? It's your church. You who have elected to attend this service at this church. This is your service. This is your church. This is your opportunity to bring people who are going into a Christless eternity because they don't have any oil. This is your place to bring them so that they can hear every week that Jesus died on the cross for them. And that God wants to be generous to them. That God wants to extend His love to them. That God wants to forgive them of their sins. That God wants them to be ready because you don't know the day. You don't know the hour. It could happen before I end this message. Don't say, I need to learn a little bit more Bible first. I need to change a few things in my life first. Jesus said, don't say four more months and then. He said, will you open your eyes? The fields, look at them. There's people everywhere. There's people all around us who don't know Jesus Christ as their Savior. And God has commissioned this church. And God has commissioned you and me to be His ambassadors. To go out and invite them. Now they turn it down. That's on them. But if they never get the invitation, that's on us. Well, keep watch. Cuz you don't know the day. You don't know the hour. But we do know this. Jesus is coming again. Let's bow our heads. I want to return just before we dismiss this morning to maybe a man or a woman who is here this morning who has never trusted Jesus Christ as your Savior. You don't have oil in the lamp. And without that oil, you're not going to be invited into the wedding festivities. Right now, you know that this is lacking in your life. And right now, the Holy Spirit of God is bearing witness with your conscience that you need this forgiveness. While no one's looking around, I'm going to ask everyone to bow your head, close your eyes. If you're here today, and this is resonating with you, and you know you need this, just so I know whether the need is here in this service this morning or not, would you say, Yeah, Pastor Pete, that's me. I've never trusted Christ as my Savior. I believe in Him, but I've never trusted in Him as my Savior. But I want to. Well, no one's looking around. Would you just raise your hand? Pastor Pete, that's me. The Spirit of God is bearing witness with my conscience. I need this forgiveness. I need this salvation. Father. Again, from the testimony of hands today, everybody here has oil in their lamp. Everyone here has reached out and received as a gift your saving faith, your saving grace, your eternal generosity. And God, I I pray that that's true, but if it's not and someone was afraid to raise their hand, Father, help them understand that your invitation to them doesn't end with this service. It stays open. They can come to me. They can come to one of our deacons at the door. They can come to somebody at the welcome center, the connection station, the resource desk, anywhere, and just say, hey, I need Jesus Christ in my life. And, and we'll get with them. and Lord, show them in your word how they can know they leave this campus not hoping they're going to go to heaven, but knowing they're going to go to heaven through your gift to us, Jesus Christ. Father, my prayer changes for all of us, and starting with me. God, break our hearts for people who don't have oil. It's so easy to take our oil and put it in our back pocket and know that we're ready whenever the bridegroom comes and not live with compassion for those who don't have oil. God, it's not that we don't know people who don't know oil. We know hundreds of people who don't have oil. God, help us as a church to take ownership of our church. Help the the body of Christ here at the Reflect service at 9.30 on Sunday mornings to take ownership of this service. God, help us to fill it for your glory with men and women who hear the gospel of Jesus Christ and trust you as their Savior. Lord, help us all to be thinking, even now, of those we can invite, of those we can reach out to, of those we can genuinely love. Help us not to think, oh, four more months. Just four more months. We don't know when you're coming. And God, we can't throw the dice believing we have more time. Use us powerfully. Help us to embrace who you've made us, your children, ambassadors of the kingdom of heaven. Help us to live that. In Jesus name, we pray. Amen. Our ushers are going to come forward and we'll receive the morning offering. Let me encourage you to give regularly. Let me tell you what's happened over the summertime. Giving is like bit a seesaw, like a teeter totter. One week we'll have a good offering, and then one week we'll have a disastrous offering. A- and the attendance doesn't change. It's all the same. This is our church. This is our work. We all need to have a part in it. Let's receive the gifts. Father, we thank you for the opportunity that we now have to give to you. God, we give you our first fruits, not our spirit change, knowing that we need to give so that your house has food to give to those who are hungry. Lord, use our gifts now. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.